0: We'll read about it in Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, and Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which will befall you in the last days. That expression, the last days, occurs 14 times in the Old Testament. The rabbis, we are told, always understood the expression to refer to the messianic era. It would be quite possible and and, uh, profitable, too, actually, to take this entire 49th chapter of Genesis and demonstrate the fact that Jacob's eyes were opened in this chapter to see the entire history of the Hebrew people from the day in which he lived, right down to all the changing vicissitudes of Old Testament history, on to the days of the Maccabees, on to the coming of Christ and his rejection, on to the days in which we live, and to the coming of the devil's messiah, and on into the millennial age. It's all in this chapter. Certainly, when Jacob spoke this prophecy on his deathbed, he spoke with the Spirit of God resting upon him as a prophet. But I'm not interested this evening in developing the chapter in that way. I want to show you how Jacob spoke to his boys on his deathbed and made them face the way they'd lived. Verse 3, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. he went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secrets. Verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's wealth. Verse 11, binding his foe unto the vine, and his ass is cold, under the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Look at verse 22. Verse 19. Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. Out of Asher. His bread shall be fat. He shall yield royal dainties. Naphtali the hind let loose. He giveth goodly words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. If you were to take the time to read all that Jacob said about Joseph, you would see that he almost exhausts himself and his vocabulary in pouring out blessings upon Joseph's head. There's something inexpressibly sobering and awesome about this scene. There's the old man lying on his deathbed and his sons, one by one, file in. And they take their places around him. They know they're in the presence of death. Your man lies there with his pilgrim's staff grasped firmly in his gnarled and twisted hands. He's about to embark upon his last and greatest pilgrimage through the grim portals of death. As they gather round his bed, they can trace upon his face the story of his life. Yearly passions of his youth have left their mark. The craft and the cunning of his manhood days have etched their lines upon his face. The nobility and the spirituality of his faith and the glorious thrilling victory of his later years have also stamped their story upon his features. And there he lies upon his bed so peaceful breathing softly. As one by one, summoned by Joseph, no doubt the boys come tiptoeing into the door of that luxurious apartment in that royal residence assigned to him by Joseph there in Egypt. I take it that the doctors and the Egyptian servants have all been put out of the room. This is a private affair. This is no place for strangers. This concerns only the family. One can just see the boys as they're standing there, can't be long, they feel awkward, you hear a cough or two and the shuffling of feet. And then suddenly the old man Sits up in bed. Life gushes up within him for one final fling. His eyes burn with a strange unearthly fire. He seizes his stick and he swings his legs out of his bed. And he leans forward and he puts his weight upon his staff. And then those piercing eyes of his look first of all at rooted And then at Levi and Simeon. A Judah, a Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, and Gad, and Asher. There's something awesome and frightening and spine-tingling about it. The old man seems to read the very secrets of their souls. And suddenly these boys realize that they have been summoned to a judgment seat. The judgment seat of Jacob. I want to suggest to you this evening, my friends, that what you have in Genesis chapter 49 is a cameo. It is a picture, it is a foreshadowing of the judgment seat of Christ. Apostle Paul tells us quite plainly and explicitly, time and time again in the New Testament, that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Please do not mistake the judgment seat of Christ with the great white throne. The great white throne is convened only for the ungodly, the unbelieving, the lost and the damned. The judgment seat of Christ is convened for believers in the Lord Jesus. It is a family affair. And it is absolutely inescapable. There is no way that you or I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will ever be able to escape appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. So we might as well find out what it's going to be like while there's still time for us to do something about. You see, these boys have lived out their lives. They've done this, that, and the other. Some good, some bad, and some indifferent. They've made their decisions. They had done their deeds. They'd said their say. Now they've got to answer for it. There's no turning back. It's too late. It's too late now for any one of these boys to say, I'm sorry, I I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. There is absolutely no way that they can retrace their steps. It's too late for them to go back and right some wrongs that they've done. What you have in this chapter is past performance and future prospects being revealed at the judgment seat of Jacob. And you can take everything that Jacob said in this chapter and trace it out in the Old Testament history of these boys and the tribes. There's something inexpressibly solemn about it, something frightening, something awesome about the sense of utter finality connected with it. Somehow we as Christians have imbibed the idea that the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a Sunday school picnic. That's not the impression you get from this seat or from the New Testament. There are going to be tears here in this chapter and regrets and remorse. There are going to be some standing here at the judgment seat of Jacob whose hearts are going to be weeping with shame. Mind you, there are going to be others whose hearts are going to be leaping for joy. But nothing can be undone. The die the has been cast. The pliable clay of life has now hardened into its final form. Obviously, we don't have time in 30 or 40 minutes to deal with all 12 of these boys. I thought maybe we'd pick up maybe three or four and just look at them. Some of them aren't so pleasant, you know. Some of them are really exciting. The thing that we must remember as we study this chapter is this. Each one of these boys was in the family. No question is ever raised about them being in the family. That was settled a long time ago. What's going to be raised at this judgment seat is not family, not the family at the kingdom. Let's look first of all at the man who was crushed at the judgment seat. Look first with me at Rubin. There he stands with his weak face and his hidden guilt never confessed, never forgiven, never forgotten. As you look at him, you can see pride and weakness and lust and guilt all struggling for the mastery in his face. And as Jacob begins, he picks out Reuben, and he underlines Reuben's unique position. He says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. And I can just see Reuben's face glow, can't you? And I can see the anxious, haunted look vanish. And I can see pride, triumph on his countenance. And he thinks to himself, oh, I'm going to get my rights after all. The rights of the firstborn, the special place of power and privilege in the family. It's going to be given to me. My firstborn. I'm going to get the double portion. The tribes will take their name from me. The promised land will be called the land of Reuben. My firstborn my might, excellency of dignity, excellency of power. But you see, this was only preliminary. This was nothing but God's sovereign electing grace. All this was simply positional. This was simply the electing sovereign grace of God putting Reuben into the family. His place in the family would never be questioned. That was settled long ever before he was born. His place in the family. That was settled in heaven. He doesn't take any special credit for his place in the family. Sovereign grace put him in the family. But now the spotlight, you see, moves in a little closer and suddenly Reuben becomes uncomfortable. Because Jacob, having mentioned his unique position, now speaks of his unstable personality. He says, unstable as water thou shalt not accept. It must have come like a sudden splash of cold water, like a shock, like a bolt from the blue. Unstable, like water that always flows down and down and down. Like water which once it spilled upon the ground, the scripture says, can never be gathered up again. And all of a sudden it begins to dawn upon these boys that what is being judged here is not his position in the family. That was settled by the sovereign grace of God who put him in the family in the first place. What is being judged here is not his position in the family, but his performance in the family. And it is going to become increasingly evident as the chapter unfolds that position, that performance in the family is what determines position in the kingdom. Now, my friend, this evening, every one of us here who soundly say, by the grace of God, that will never be changed. It's God's love and mercy and electing sovereign grace that puts you in the family the moment you believe. You'll never lose your place in the family. But listen, my friend, your performance and mine in the family is what's going to determine our position in the kingdom. And because Reuben never learned self-discipline, because he never learned simple dependence, because he never learned the dynamics of excellence, because he always followed his carnal nature, because he never learned to live a crucified life, because he lacked character and lacked conviction and lacked courage and lacked everything that it took to excel in a kingdom, he lost out. He was in the family. He was even in the kingdom. All the boys were. That was not going to be questioned for a single moment. But what's going to be questioned here is the judgment seat of Jacob is their position in the kingdom. And I challenge you to read the entire Old Testament and see if what was said at this judgment seat did not work out line for line exactly as Jacob said it would in the kingdom, the Old Testament kingdom. It was their performance in the family that determined their position in the kingdom. It still does. You see, he lost out along the line of excellence. Instead of getting an A-plus for his performance in the family, he got an F. If there's one thing that you and I need to learn as the Lord's dear people, it is this simple basic principle that while God, blessed be his holy name, while God gives us unmerited salvation, he will never give us unmerited reward. Having mentioned his unique position. And his unstable personality. All of a sudden the spotlight comes right home. And Jacob puts his finger upon Reuben's unscrupulous passion. He said, thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Thou defilest it. He went up to my couch. Oh, the passion. And the wrath in the voice of Jacob. When he said that, it must have rung like a trumpet blast around the room. And I can see every last brother in that room holding his breath. For suddenly the atmosphere is dreadfully heavy. This was it, you see. Unconfessed sin was now going to be dragged out into the open and dealt with in front of everybody. I tell you that Reuben would have rather died a hundred deaths than have his guilt dragged out like that. Well, oh, mind you, it had taken a long time in coming. The thing that Jacob refers to at the judgment seat of Jacob had happened 39 years ago. There had been 22 years in Canaan. There had been 17 years in Egypt. There had been 39 years in which Reuben could have repented of that particular sin. For 39 years Reuben had had covered it up and Jacob had waited and waited and waited and waited for 39 long years. For Ruben to come to him and say, Oh, Father, I'm sorry. I wish I'd never done it. Oh, Father, can you forgive me for what I did? I'm so ashamed of myself. I've been... Can you forgive me? But for 39 years, think of it, he'd just been covering up one big long cover-up for 39 years and at the judgment seat out it comes for 39 years jacob had waited for Ruben, who was in the family, mind you, to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance, and he'd never done it, and because he had never confessed this sin in his life, this horrible thing that he had done, it has to be dealt with at the judgment seat. Now again, I want you to understand it has nothing to do with him being in the family. He never lost his salvation. He never lost his place in the family. But he certainly lost his place in the kingdom. He was in the kingdom, but he never amounted to anything in the kingdom. Never. Then there were the The two men who were condemned at the judgment seat. Jacob's peering eyes now look at Simeon and Levi and he sees the two as one. And what God had not joined together, he was now about to tear asunder. And I can see these two boys as they stir uneasily under the gaze of the Father as he looks now at them. And all of a sudden it dawns upon them something that surely ought to dawn upon us. That this is not a mercy seat, this is a judgment seat. Wherever we get the idea as Christians that the judgment seat of Christ is a mercy seat, I don't know. Thank God there is a mercy seat. And that mercy seat is open to you and to me as God's dear people in the family. It's open to us tonight. We can come at any time and find grace to help in time of need. And the Lord Jesus says if we have, if we will confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for the mercy seat. My friend, if you won't avail yourself of the mercy seat, then please remember there is a judgment seat. We haven't really time to go back and uncover the story of these two boys, the dreadful thing that they did. As, as Jacob looks at them, he says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Brethren! Underline it in your Bible, they are brethren, they are in the family. That's not being questioned. But, oh, what they did, they behaved worse than unsaved people. They behaved in such a scandalous, wicked way. But at the time, Jacob, Jacob, he couldn't let it pass. He just told them, he said, your behavior has made the name of God to stink amongst the ungodly. Do you think they confessed it? Do you think they took their place before the fathers and said, we're sorry for what we've done? Oh no, they justified it. That's what they did. They justified their behavior. That's what they did. And now it's dealt with, you see, at the judgment seat. well it would be a sad meeting wouldn't it if we, if, we, if we just spent the whole meeting dealing with the negative but we must be faithful to the word of God please go back and read what Paul says about the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians and remember that the Holy Spirit tells us that it is possible to have a saved soul and a lost life that it is possible to be in the family and yet told to live that in the judgment seat of Christ your whole life is burned up who pay and stop. Save but so as thy fire. We would not be faithful to the word of God if we didn't emphasize the negative, but thank God there's the positive. I want you to, to look with me briefly for a moment at the man who was crowned at the judgment seat. Oh Jacob's eye turns now to Judah. Now, I rather suspect, you know, that when Jacob looked at Judah, that Judah quailed. And I can almost read his thoughts. He's thinking to himself, what's he going to say to me about that pagan woman that I married? What's he going to say to me about my dreadful failure as a father? What's he going to say to me about those two sons of mine that God himself had to destroy because their lives were so filthy? What's he going to say to me about that wretched business with Tamar? What's he going to say to me about my part in selling Joseph? But do you know, my friend, the wonderful thing is that Jacob didn't say anything about any of those things. Nothing. Because, you see, the judgment seat of Christ was, is not convened, just as the judgment seat of Jacob was not convened to rake up forgiven sins. And at the judgment seat of Jacob, in spite of the fact that there were some pretty sordid things in Judah's past, Not one of these things is mentioned by Jacob. They're all forgiven and they're all forgotten. And Jacob doesn't say a thing at all, not a single thing, about Judah's failures. Because the judgment seat of Jacob was convened to deal with important unconfessed not with things that had long ago been put under the blood. Did you notice what Jacob said about Joseph? He says again and again about Joseph. He relates everything he does to the vine. Binding his pole unto the vine and his ass's coat unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Somewhere in Judah's past there came a day in his experience when he related his whole life afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the cross, and the shedding of the blood, and he got the whole of that wretched business in his path covered by the blood. And that was never raised against him. How wonderful. Well, my friend, if you've got something in your life tonight, and you'll bring it to Christ, and let him put it under the blood, it'll never be raised against you the judgment seat of Christ. There was a man who was crowned at the judgment seat. Jacob speaks of him as the leader. And he speaks of him as the lion. And he speaks of him in terms of the Lord. And in terms of the land. You see there had been a day in the life of Judah. When he had come and placed himself before Joseph, and he had pleaded before Joseph for Benjamin. And in so doing, he had put himself in a position before Joseph, and hence before the Father, so that all those things that were in his past could never be brought against him again. Inasmuch as he did it unto the least of these my little ones, he did it unto me. And here was a man at the judgment seat of Jacob, and although he had things in his life that were just as bad as some of the things that Reuben and Simeon and Levi had done, they're all forgiven and all forgotten. And instead of being crushed and condemned at the judgment seat, here was a man who was crowned at the judgment seat. Look very quickly with me at Asher. Asher was a man who was consoled at the judgment seat. By and by Jacob's eyes come to rest on Asher. Always felt sorry for Gad and Asher. You know they were nobodies in the family. They were the sons of Leah's bondwoman, Zilpah. Now Dan and Naphtali also were sons of the bondwoman. Only their mother was Bilhar, Rachel's slave. But Gad and Asher were sons of unwanted Leah's unwanted slave. They were nobodies in the family of God's chosen people. And of the four of them, Asher was the last and the least of them all. I've often thought that this poor fellow Asher often must have crept away to his bed as a boy and knelt down and said, Dear Lord, why didn't you give me the same gifts that you gave to Judah? Oh, God, why is it that I'm a nobody? Nobody ever looks at me. Nobody ever listens to me. I'm just a nobody in this family. But you know, God has a great liking for nobody. He does. People who are not particularly distinguished, they don't have any of the special gifts, they don't preach to thousands, they don't give vast sums of money to the Lord's work, they don't pastor great churches or write famous books or die martyrs' deaths. They just simply carry on quietly in the small corner where God has placed them, faithful and dependable and the backbone of what God is doing in the world today. so at the judgment seat, Jacob looks at Asher, the man who was a nobody. And yet in his own quiet way, he he had just taken that humble position in the family. And while he was never particularly distinguished, he just quietly lived out his life in the place where he had been put, you see. And at the judgment seat, Jacob says out of Asher, his bread shall be packed. He shall yield royal dainties. You see, because Asher, who was a nobody, was faithful in the family where God had put him. Because of that, in the coming kingdom, he was going to serve the king. He was going to serve in the kingdom just as faithfully as he had served in the family. And he would yield royal dainties. It would be for him to bring something special, something delectable, something delightful, just for the king. It would his, be his place in the kingdom to bring some satisfying portion, especially succulent. For the king. And as Jacob looks at Asher, he says, I've got a word of consolation for you, son. In the coming kingdom, I'm going to see to it that it will be your special privilege to minister directly to the king himself. Why say, what could be better than that? Wouldn't you rather be a nobody, but faithful, doing what God has given you to do in the family, whether it's in the nursery or helping clean up the building or take care of the grounds or teaching Sunday school to some unappreciative boys and girls, or nursing a sick loved one, you can be quite sure of this, that any cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be taken by the Lord Jesus as having been done directly to himself. And he'll see that you don't go unrewarded in the kingdom. In the crowning day that's coming. By and by. Time's gone. I I wish we had time to talk about Joseph. The man who was confident of the judgment seat. You know there was one man in the room that, that day when those boys came filing in and took up their position around that old patriarch. As he brings them one by one before his judgment seat. There was one boy in that room who was confident. His name was Joseph. Oh, I tell you that Joseph couldn't wait for the judgment seat of Jacob. He knew what was going to happen to him. Hallelujah! He could hardly wait for it. He had so lived his life. His whole life had been one glorious manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't wait for the judgment seat. He knew that at the judgment seat he was going to be crowned with glory and honor. Doesn't that remind you of the Apostle Paul? Towards the end of his life with Nero's axeman sharpening up the ax to take off his head. Down there in that dreadful prison where he spent his last few weeks scratching out his last little note to Timothy, he says, listen, Timothy, he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge shall give me in that day. Oh, says Paul, I can hardly wait for the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, I know, I know that when that day comes I'm going to be crowned. Hallelujah! For the judgment seat. I can't wait. I can't wait. Paul says, we must all appear at the judgment seat of Christ. Are looking forward to it? Or are you a bit afraid of it? My friend, if there's something you need to put right, come to the mercy seat. Get it put right. And then you'll be able to look forward to the judgment seat. Shall we pray? O God, our Father, Thou hast met us day after day during this week. We have met these people from the pages of the past. This one, and that one, and the other one. And as tonight we have stood back in the shadows, and seen Jacob's sons, one by one, summoned before that all-seeing eye. Think of Reuben. That unconfessed sin in his life. Thirty-nine years. Covering up. Oh, we pray that there might not be anyone like that here tonight. And if there is, Lord, we pray that they might not go on another five minutes like that. May we be men like Joseph. Men like Asher. Quietly and humbly living our lives in the smile of thine approval, keeping short accounts with God, and looking forward to the day when every man shall have praise of God, and some will be gloriously crowned, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.